Exciting episode of the Fire and Water Podcast, the official podcast of AquamanShrine.net and FirestormFan.com. I'm one of your hosts, the Ernie Mobile Shag from Firestorm Fan. Along with me, as always, is the climactic Rob Kelly from Aquaman Shrine. That just doesn't sound right. How you doing, buddy? Shag, the reason I've picked you long ago to be my podcasting partner is because it's in your blood. I am your father. Oh my gosh. <laughs> So you watched it. I did. <laughs> if For those of you who don't know, we'll just leave it at that. That was the funniest damn moment. My whole family fell out laughing. Uh, that was just brilliant. In fact, leading up to it, my stepson's going, no, he's not going to say that. No. no. Oh, my God, he said it. I really get the sense Mark Hamill's enjoying his life right now. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, there now people know what you're talking about. But, yes, yes, very much so. Oh, it was a pure joy. And did you watch the? Did you watch the clip for what's coming up? I did. <laughs> did you see a certain somebody with fiery flaming hands? <laughs> I saw more than that. I saw other people with visors and all sorts of things. He was vibe. He was totally vibe. <laughs> Looks like he's getting like a virtual reality vibe. Oh my god, it was so good. I love the Flash so much. All right, folks. Well, we are back for another one of our monthly review episodes where we're going to talk about the latest issue of Aquaman, King of the Seven Seas, and the Fury of... That should be the tagline. But anyway, uh, that and the Fury of Firestorm, the Nuclear Man, number 20. Or as my friend Rod likes to say, Firestorm Classic. But before we get... You are an accomplished mimic, sir. You like that? Yeah, I know. Me and Rich a little. Uh, But before then, folks, our... Uh, we are going to take a moment out and say thanks to our sponsor. Folks, the Fire and Water Podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collector editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. What you got, my good friend? 
Uh, yeah, this week I am picking Giant Size Marvel Trade Paperback, and the reason behind that is a couple days ago, uh, probably many of you saw that the comic book writer Roger Slifer or Sliffer passed away uh, at a fairly young age, uh, and he was the guy behind the Omega Men. And we had a lot of fun at the Omega Men's expense Just a at, bit. at the Who's Who podcast. But as I said on Facebook, I actually really love that book, especially the first year of it. Uh, so, And that was really due in, in largely to Roger Slifer because he was the main writer. So I wanted to, to recommend something he wrote. Unfortunately, not a lot of his stuff has been collected. And, and if it has, it's not on Insuck Trades. But there is this book, Giant Size Marvel Trade Paperback. It collects all these different stories from Giant Size Fantastic Four number four, Giant Size Avengers number one, Giant Size Defenders number four, Giant Size Superheroes number one, Giant Size Invaders number one, Giant Size X-Men number one, and Giant Size Creatures number one. Featuring stories by Len Wein, Roy Thomas, Steve Gerber, Don McGregor, Roger Slifer, Jerry Conway, Tony Isabella, art by Dave Cockrum, John Buscema, Rich Buckler, Don Heck, Gil Kane, Frank Robbins, and Don Perlin, <laughs> with a cover by John Romita and John Shuck, I believe. And so this this is just like classic, classic, Silver <laughs> Age and Bronze Age Marvel fun. The normal price is twenty four ninety nine. In stock trade price is fourteen dollars and forty nine cents. That is forty two percent off. You can't if you love Marvel from this period, you can't beat this collection because this is just super fun stuff. And it features, like I said, some work by Roger Slifer. You ready for this? It's a great trade paperback. I own it. Nice. So I picked that up one day at a, at a sale, and I was very pleased with my purchase. Very pleased. Well, folks, oddly enough, I also have a Marvel book. I picked Daredevil Lone Stranger, and here's why. I recently became a convert and signed up for Marvel Digital Unlimited. I am a subscriber. I now have access to 15,000 comic books. It's basically um, – Even Netflix. Alf? Uh, it's not out there because it's a license thing, but oh, uh, it's <laughs> it's basically Marvel's Netflix. You pay a price and get access to pretty much the, almost the whole catalog. It's a wonderful. I blame J. David Weider for this new addiction of mine. I'm afraid I won't see my family anymore. But when I got it, I immediately dove into some of my favorite Daredevil stories, and some of them were by Ann Nascenti and drawn by John Romita Jr. I love, love, love that era. It's a bit controversial. Not everyone loves it because it's not traditional Daredevil stories. And this trade paperback is a perfect example of it. And in fact, this trade paperback has my the first issue of Daredevil I bought on a regular basis. So the gist of it is, because of what happened in Inferno, remember Marvel's Inferno? Mm-hmm. Um, Daredevil has lost faith. He's lost hope. His whole life has spun out of control. And he actually leaves New York, which is why, it's like I said, it's sort of not typical Daredevil. He leaves New York and kind of goes on a walkabout because he's kind of lost himself and he's trying to find hope again. And he, they, you know, it's guest star Spider-Man. It's got the Freedom Force, if you remember some good old 80s there. It collects Daredevil 265 to 273. Great stuff. 216 pages, full color. Normally goes for $24.99. In-stock trades price is $14.49, 42% off. That is a great trade, folks. Uh, if, you, if you love John Romita Jr. and you love Daredevil, I think you'll have a lot of fun with this one. So, remember, folks, please visit InStockTrades.com, your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. And then don't forget, please go up to that Contact Us button and let them know that the Fire & Water podcast sent you. So before we get rolling, there's a couple of things that happened today uh, at the time of this recording that I think are sort of fun to, to mention. Today happens to be, at the day of the recording, sorry to pull back the curtain, but today's April 1st, also known as what, Rob? April Fool's Day, of course. 
Oh, I was thinking something else. That's even better. Okay, we'll go with that. April Fool's Day. And there's a little-known podcast that probably none of you listen to, and you really shouldn't, but it's called Marvel Superheroes Podcast from the Rolled Spine Network. This is the podcast um, spearheaded by Diablo Frank and his two co-hosts, Not Frank 1 and Not Frank 2. And today they released their most sensible and logical episode they've ever released, wouldn't you say, Rob? Yes, it's finally an episode I could get all the way through. So uh, go out to the Roll Spy Network, check out the episode from April 1st. I believe um, it's just, the name is simply the symbol of an anchor. You know how Frank likes to number his comments like 1, 2, Pi, Alpha, Omega, Delta, Boat Anchor. Well, the name of their episode is Boat Anchor. And uh, he's got two guest hosts, I guess you could say, on that episode. And it's absolutely brilliant and stellar podcasting. So please go check that out. And I think you can probably see where that's going. But anyway, uh, also want to give a shout out to our good buddy, Lil Russell Burbage from Central City. He released today uh, a year-long um, opus, I guess you could say, that he's been putting together. If you don't know, Russell, in his sort of uh, disenfranchised sense of, of modern-day comics, has been creating his own Justice League comics that are essentially the, the, the satellite era of the Justice League. And he's been writing these and and having friends draw them and stuff. And he's just released issue number 39. It's entitled, That's What Friends Are For. And a lot of the issue is dedicated to, uh, as Rob, or as he called us, Rob and I, the spiritual fathers, I think, of this issue. Is that what it was? <laughs> Something like that. Because almost everyone involved in the issue is part of the Fire and Water podcast family you know, uh, of, of uh, nuclear subs. So it's a really cool. Uh, it'll be out on Firestorm Fan. You can find the links to it on social media. We've we've pimped it. Uh, definitely check it out. Lots of fun. Thank you, Russell, for um, producing that and for giving us a shout out. I, I really appreciate it. With that, Rob, I think it's time to talk about a guy who talks to fish. And would it, is it fair to say this is his last appearance in the new Fifty Two? I guess so. Uh, we don't exactly know just yet what's going on with that. Uh, but, yeah, this, is, this might be – well, hmm. That's a good question. You know, <laughs> it's, I just, a, it's a loaded question. It is a loaded question. I just don't know. I just don't know. Well, um, it, it, it is his last appearance in the New 52 because next month is, uh, is the Convergence stuff. Right. But we don't know – we don't know exactly know what's coming out of Convergence though. Well, where I'm going – the joke I'm going with is oh, – um, on the other side, they will no longer carry the new 52 label. That is true. So yeah. will it still be the same version of Aquaman? Yeah, I imagine it probably will. But it won't carry the new 52 label anymore. It will not be considered the new 52 universe anymore. That that era is over. So this is the last new 52 Aquaman. Okay. All right. Well, it's Long a- way to go for Joe. Yeah. Thanks. Wow. Ooh, Thanks, boy. buddy. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's what really happens. Pre- really appreciate it. Uh, well, let's just keep extending this. So this is uh, Mael- <laughs> Thanks, man. This is Aquaman number forty, Maelstrom part six. Of course, by the by, for the last time, Parker, Pelletier, and Sandra. In this case, Sandra Hope and Rain Barreto and a couple of others. Unfortunately, Sean Parsons did not return to the book. But anyway, what can you do? Uh, Maelstrom goes out with a bang, several actually, and starts <laughs> off with the volcano god known as Karaku descending upon Aquaman, Mira, and the rest. And that is the title page as we see him attacking everybody. Atlanta refuses to retreat, and she says, I don't even know that direction. So Aquaman steps in to help save her life. Unfortunately, he can't do the same for Dr. Evans, who is grabbed by one of the fire trolls and is mortally wounded. Aquaman pauses in the fight to speak to Evans as he dies, to give him some comfort. 
and that gives Karaku an opportunity. He lowers his fist down on Aquaman, smashing him presumably into little bits. We see Mira scream out Aquaman's name. She yells, Arthur, because she's worried, of course, that he's been killed. Atlanta still insists that this man is not her son and is so busy protecting, protesting, I'm sorry, that she doesn't immediately notice the thunderous booms that are getting louder and louder. They are caused by Mira, who is using all of her might to form a water creature equal in size to Krakow and do battle, just as Atlanta spirits Aquaman away from further harm. And we see, of course, that Aquaman is not dead, but very, very bruised. And he is very proud of Mira as he watches Mira's giant water creature beat the crap out of Krakow. <laughs> Karaku falls, crumbling into pieces. As Aquaman and Mira comfort one another, Atlanta is truly impressed at the strength, power, and heroism she's seen in these two. But she still denies parentage and is there to defend her land. She's there to defend her land from these Atlantean interlopers like Tula and the rest. It's here that Aquaman plays his last, most impressive card, summoning the creatures of the sea. And in a giant two-page splash, we see all these various crazy creatures come out of the sea, uh, based upon Aquaman asking them to with his little voo-voo-voo stuff. This finally convinces Atlanta of the truth. With that, Aquaman promises that simple acknowledgement was all he wanted, and he prepares to leave his mother in peace. Using the maelstrom, Atlanta sends her son and the rest back home, with Aquaman promising that her world will be left alone. Back in our Earth, a light flares and Aquaman's trident, which he had left behind, suddenly comes through, with Atlanta's signet hooked around it. It communicates with them telepathically, in a sort of Jorellian way, that with, uh, with the signet, his sovereignty will no longer be in doubt to the people of Atlantis. And the final page of the book is Aquaman, now back in his, uh, back in his, his costume, which had been ripped up to this point. I think it's meant to be sort of metaphorical, because he didn't like reform his shirt right now. Right. Um, but he's standing there with Mira, they're arm in arm, and he's got his trident, and he's basically poised to no longer be disputed the king of Atlantis because he is now f- has full on proof that he is the you know son of both worlds and the ruler of Atlantis. And that is the end of the issue and the end of the Parker Pelletier era of Aquaman. Mm. Man, I'm sad to see it end. Yes. Now before before I forget this. Uh, this may not exactly be the last time Parker ever works in Aquaman because there is rumors afoot that he is working on a mirror project. Ooh. Uh, which uh, Jeff promised me. I wrote to Jeff. We ran an interview with him, as we called it, an exit interview uh, <laughs> last week, which was our third and final interview with him as the writer of Aquaman. And then he, I spoke to him privately and, and said, you know, how much I really enjoyed his, his run on the book. And, and, you know, it was nice that I wasn't blowing smoke. I was you know, actually telling the truth. And he told me you that you don't normally do that. No, exactly. And, uh, I had in the interview, I had said, well, what are you working on next? And he said that he couldn't tell anybody, but he would be revealing it soon. He said in the, in the last episode, I was like underwhelmed by number 39, but then I, he came roaring back with this one. I thought this was just a blast. It had a ton of great moments. It was a great, powerful way to end this storyline. It had, you know, a ton of really huge scenes, uh, and it wrapped everything up quite nicely. It gave Mira, I mean, in some ways, Mira got more of a showcase than Aquaman did in this issue. I mean, her forming the giant water creature is just amazing um, and really shows like, how much they've been beefing her up, and now she is, you know, the equal. I mean, it wouldn't shock me if they changed the title of the book to Aquaman and Mira. They're not I've been, going. I've not, been saying that all not, along. Yeah, not going to, but it wouldn't shock me if they did. So, yeah, I, I thought it was a great finale and a really nice way for, for Jeff and the uh, Paul to go out. Now, I don't know if this was sort of intentional, but if you look at the parallels of Jeff's first story and his last story, his first story, Arthur had to take out that giant crab monster leviathan creature. 
Right. And Arthur did that himself. Here, that, that same creature is referenced, and then Mara is the one who takes out the giant creature at the end. So I don't know if there's, I don't, I doubt that was an intentional bookending kind of thing, you know, because it just both times the monster was larger than life. I don't think he he fought any monster that big in between. You know, it was just the beginning and the end. Both came in with these enormous creatures and. As you said, she was sort of the battle superstar, whereas he was the emotional star of the yeah. story, which worked well. So they both were vital to the story. I enjoyed the hell out of this thing. My, my favorite line in the whole book is when Arthur saves his mother. And uh, what does he say to her? Too damn bad, mother. Yeah. <laughs> I don't need your help. Too damn bad, mother. <laughs> That's great. Very enjoyable. And... Um, well, what did, talk, talk about the art for a second. Well, I mean, Pelletier, and in this case, Sandra Hope, I mean, they did a really, really nice job. The the Karaku is a really sort of fearsome, nasty-looking creature. I mean, these, this really, this we've said this before, I mean, all these issues have a very, very Harryhausen vibe to them. The water creature and the Karaku and the fire trolls are all, you know, done, the, you can see these done in stop-motion animation, you know, from 40 years ago or something like that, so... They they really were a really solid team. Parker and Pelletier really found a groove. It took a couple of issues, and it took Pelletier a little while to kind of get up to speed in terms of his deadlines. But he was able to come through with these, you know, with this storyline. And I love all the creatures coming up on the beach when Aquaman calls them. That's a really impressive piece. It's uh, it said they really he really caught the grandeur of it. And uh, I, I said I was overall just very very satisfied. And this this will make it'll be interesting to read this all together as a trade. It'll probably even hang together. Even even better, all collected between two covers. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it will. As one big piece, it'll read well. And also, this particular issue really gave Rain Barreto a chance to shine. Not in sort of like the spiritual type scenes we saw like in, in the early issues when uh, Joe Prado was still doing, or yeah, Prado was doing the colors, right? Rod Reese. Rod Reese. I'm sorry, Rod. Right, right, right. Rod Reese was doing the colors. This was more sort of explosive red fire from the vol- from the volcano creature and the blue from the water creature. I mean, the colors are just wow in this issue. They just really pop off the page because the story just lent to it, and um, it's lots of fun. I think I think we've given as many superlatives as we can. Uh, I'm really thrilled his mother survived, though. I, I think I mentioned that last issue. I didn't really want her to die, and I'm glad Jeff listened to my pleas. And- yeah, I think they found an elegant way to sort of end it. I mean, it would have been very disappointing to kill her off, and at the same time, it wouldn't have made any sense to have her running around right. with them. So, yeah, it made sense that it's like, okay, she's she's around, and, and if somebody wants to pick up that story thread, they can. Uh, but if for you know using the signet again, they can maybe use her like in a in a Marlon Brando as Jarrell kind of way that every so often she can sort of pipe in spiritually and say some things to him and maybe take away his powers or something. But then we'll he gets, gets him we'll back in the she, fortress. We'll find out she was a robot. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so it's super cool. And like I said, I'm very excited if this if the news turns out to be true that Jeff is going to be doing a mirror thing. First of all, I'm excited they're doing they're, they might even be doing a mirror thing. Uh, but uh, that would be really great if DC was smart enough to say, you know what, Parker did a really superb job. Let's find a way to keep him on Aquaman in a different way. That would be really neat. Well, they, in, in this new wave of stuff that starts coming out after Convergence, it seems like they've gotten a little more bold with miniseries. Like, you know, they're doing that 12-issue Prez miniseries and things like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not endorsing that, but I'm just saying that's a pretty bold move to do, you know, to commit to a miniseries like that. So maybe there, maybe it's a mirror miniseries, you know, yeah. rather than like a backup or something. Yeah. No, that would be, that would be fantastic. There's nothing wrong with doing a miniseries, you know, like I'm currently reading the Princess Leia miniseries that Marvel's doing. It's like, okay, this, this necessarily can't go on for forever, but a miniseries is good. You know, it's a good in-between step. So why not? 
Is that any good, that Princess Leia book? I'm enjoying it very much. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. Because I've read Star Wars, and I've read Darth Vader a little bit. Mm-hmm. And um, both, you know, they were entertaining. So I just, yep. at Leia, I just didn't see it in the store. It was sold out, so I missed out on yep. it. Good stuff. Cool. All right. Well, I guess we will move on to um, Firestorm. Is that right? Yeah, let's go. All right. So this is our first issue. Well, I guess not. 19 would have been the first issue after the annual. Never mind. So uh, this is our first issue with Raphael Cannon as regular artist, though. So here's the deal, folks. First, Fury of Firestorm, the Nuclear Man, number 20, cover dated February 1984. However, if you want, grab a hold of your time turner and go back in time to November 3rd, 1983. Getting ready for Thanksgiving. Snuggling up with some Firestorm. Get that clean, get that right off the shelf, get that new print smell. It's great. At a 10,000 foot level, this is a story about lovers, is what it really is. You've got some, some plot threads with Firestorm and Firehawk in here as lovers. You've got Ronnie and Lorraine, which is the other side of that, which is their civilian identities. You've got uh, a story of Ronnie and Doreen, his girlfriend. You've got Professor Stein and his ex wife, Clarissa. You've got Stein and Frost. Killer Frost, you've got Stein and his work. All of these things are things that love each other and, you know, are lovers, if you will. And that's kind of the, at, at its core, that's really what this story's about. And at some points, they kind of hit you over the head with it, but it, it works quite well. For the cover, the cover is by Raphael Cannon and Dick Giordano. And I got to tell you, this is one of my favorite Firestorm covers of all time. I love this thing. Firestorm is holding Killer Frost in his arms and she is touching him and freezing him. So, the cover conveys a lot of stuff. It shows her sort of vulnerable because he's having to carry her. However, it shows her strength of character by simply with a touch freezing him solid. And she is sexy as hell on this cover. I don't know what it is about it, but this to me is the sexiest Killer Frost image of her entire publication history. Every image ever done of her, this is the one that I find the sexiest. I think it's because they gave her pupils. <laughs> I think that just softens the whole thing because very rarely are you reminded that Killer Frost is supposed to be beautiful. Usually, she looks kind of scary. Here, she looks hot. I don't know. What, what do you think of the cover? I didn't. I, you know, I knew she looked different on this cover, and I couldn't put my finger on it. And then I realized, yes, this, she's got pupils. I find it funny that her facial reaction is very sort of calm. Mm-hmm. It's not like she's just kind of like, oh yeah, to turn frost, turn firestorm into into ice, no problem. Uh, I think it's a great cover. I think the co- the colors are nice, simple background. You know, I, I it's very striking. Yep, the, even the square in the background sort of sets it off. Nice design element. Yep. So, great job, great job. So, folks, all right. So, running through the plot, going to try and do this sort of fast. I'm not nearly as fast as Rob though, and his was scripted this time. Did you guys notice that? Wow. Did Michael Bailey write your review for you again? <laughs> I, I'm not at liberty to say. <laughs> All right. Issue opens with Firestorm and Firehawk flying over New York City. They are flying, kissing, and falling in love and falling out of the sky. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of smoochy smoochy, and we get some moments of her recapping her origin. So if somebody missed uh, the issue from three months ago, they, they get caught up quickly. It, it did seem sort of excessive considering it was just three months ago. But anyway, um, Meanwhile, Professor Stein is sort of talking in Ronnie's head. He doesn't really approve of this. And Ronnie's kind of like, Professor Stein, give me some space. We have to share a body. We don't have to share everything. So, and Stein starts to feel sort of ignored. Anyway, Firehawk uh, indicates she's got to leave. She's got to go meet her dad, so she takes off. Ronnie and the professor split. 
uh, or separate, and Ronnie and, this, and they have a quick discussion. Professor Stein reminds Ronnie, well, you know, you're making out with this girl, and by the way, you have a girlfriend named Doreen, which Ronnie sort of slaps himself in the forehead like, oh, duh, I forgot about that. Meanwhile, in upstate New York, uh, we focus on a particular prison, and in this prison, they have an entire wing that has been frozen solid just to contain Killer Frost. And uh, they, there's a discussion with the warden and a couple of guards about how they have to maintain Killer Frost's civil rights. So they have to keep her in a prison rather than shipping her off to like Antarctica or something. And that's why they have to have her here. But it's, it's sort of a pain in the butt because it's made that entire cell block unusable except for her because they have to freeze it. <clears throat> in fact, her cell is down to absolute zero. So the warden has to put on the special suit. He goes in there because he's got to go talk to her, explain to her that her appeal has her, her most recent appeal has been denied. Meanwhile, outside, and this is the part where you get kind of hit over the head, are some lovebirds, uh, little birds that are flying around and being sweet and chasing each other. And, it, and it's also supposed to sort of reflect what was just happening with Ronnie and Lorraine flitting through the sky. It's very similar. Well, one of the birds accidentally lands and shorts out an electrical transformer, which, <laughs> which creates a chain reaction, which shuts the whole prison down. Wow. If anybody, if people, if crooks knew it was that easy, you know, Otis would have gotten uh, Lex out of there a long time ago. Anyway, um, the, as the electricity goes out in this frozen solid wing, the heat from the warden's suit is just enough to raise the temperature in Killer Frost's cell, and she breaks out. She kills the guards, and she kills the warden, and again, she uses this expression... Lover, she calls the warden her lover. Uh, then, then we get into subplot time, and you get uh, a lot of subplots get touched on. It's sort of almost like just like touching base with them, so we know we know we haven't forgotten. Ronnie, um, after he gets home from being out all night with Firehawk, he calls Doreen. And he was like, uh, uh, I, I, "Sorry, I had a cold. I sorry, I missed our date." And she's like, "You're full of crap. I called through your house three times. Your dad said you weren't there. So if you want to break up with me, just do it." So there's there's some stress there between lovers. Then Ronnie and his dad uh, have a nice little interaction. You get, a, you get a sense that his dad is very frustrated, and this is all post uh, having to fake his death and, you know, the shoe shine issue and all that. And his dad's just frustrated because they're not living in their house. Their house blew up. They're in a rental house. And, but the nice thing is, <laughs> what I do? No, it's just funny the way some of this stuff, oh, right after he faked his death and their the <laughs> house blew up. It's just people are much more resilient in the DC Comics universe. It is. It is. You are talking about this as if it's every day a thing. You know, yeah. so I had a yard sale and my house blew up and now I'm in a rental house. You know. um, anyway, the nice thing about this scene is what you're showing is that Ronnie and his dad are coping together. Rather than being at odds as they've been the previous you know, 19 issues, they're working together, which is nice. Then you get a scene with uh, Professor Stein and Harry Carew, um, the guy who <laughs> – the exercise nut who's been a royal pain for Stein. He comes running to him, basically says, you got to come on. Concord's, Concordance Research is rehiring you. So suddenly Stein is reemployed. He's back at Concordance Research, and he finds out that Concordance has been acquired by a company called Century Industries. Hmm, Century Industries. For those of you who can peek into the future or remember who's who, that's a hint to the 2000 committee. Anyway, uh, Quentin Quayle, Stein's horrible boss that we all hate, who wishes he'd die in a fire, and ironically, in the Flash TV show, he almost did. Um, he's forced to, so he's been forced to rehire Stein. He's not happy about it. And guess who's watching all of this take place? Yeah, that's right, the lilac-tinted whore. Stein's ex-wife, oh. Clarissa. She is now working for some uh, somebody else. Hint, hint, 2000 committee. So then we click over, again, still checking in on subplots. Firehawk Lorraine goes to visit her dad, uh, the senator. He is now in trouble. There's an investigative committee looking into his dealings with the whole Hewlett um, 
Hewlett affair where he uh, he voted on a, a, a regulation because Lorraine was kidnapped. He doesn't fess up. He doesn't say that Lorraine was kidnapped, which is what swayed his vote. He just gets angry and yells at folks because basically it's his political rivals that are confronting him. And it almost seems like he's trying to protect Lorraine throughout all this. And uh, he storms out and Lorraine's worried about her dad. Okay, subplot section over. Now we get jump into Killer Frost. She, in addition to Clarissa, is also watching Stein. Um, he's got bad luck with ladies, I'm telling you. So anyway, she, uh, she jumps Stein as he's coming out of work at 11 o'clock at night, chases him into a subway terminal. Stein, very cleverly, uh, to get away from her, jumps in front of an oncoming subway. Any normal person is going to get smashed by the subway, but he triggers the transformation to Firestorm at the last second, transforms into Firestorm, and demands that Ronnie go in material so they can pass through the train. It's really a very clever sort of action scene. Really nice. So Ronnie immediately reduces his density to nothing. They float through the train, or more, more exact, the train, I guess, goes through them. Either way, uh, when they come out the other side, Stein very quickly gets Ronnie up to speed, and they look, and Killer Frost has escaped. And we get a shot of her on the street, and she is angry, because Stein, who she always viewed as her lover, um, is, she believes Stein is dead, because she, she thinks that he committed suicide jumping in front of the train, and she is angry. And that is the end of this issue. What did you think, my friend Rob? <laughs> uh, first of all, I was distracted by all the 80s references, uh, which, <laughs> which, of course, were just meant to be contemporary, because that's when Jerry wrote them, but between... Doreen's missing persons T-shirt. Is that what? Okay, that's one of my notes. Is what does her shirt say? Yeah, I think it says "missing persons," which is that band. And then, uh, and then in the final panel, you've got the risky business playing at the, the uh, on the marquee there uh, with a with a uh, a black and white stat of Tom Cruise, even that they dropped in. That's Uh, in my notes too. What is that about? Yeah, I don't know why that's there. Um, Movie of the year or film of the year? Of the year. I don't know what that is supposed to mean exactly. You're right. They statted it in. How weird. Yeah, and it's hard to see, but there's Tom Cruise in the shades and stuff, which just reminds you of how long Tom Cruise has been a movie star. Um, (laughs) Art wise, I was a little thrown. I felt like there were, like, I don't know whether. Jerry wrote an especially dense issue or the fact that this is Raphael Kennedy's first one. He didn't necessarily know how to pace it the same as Pat Broderick did because there are a lot of pages here where there's like nine or ten panels a page. Mm-hmm. And I felt it's like a little squished. You know, there was just some of like lots of little figures running around and I, I was a little still like, eh, okay. Not completely in love with it. But I also realized this was only his second issue. Right on Firestorm, and so you know he's got. And I knew that he gets better over time. He finds actually, his, it's his second published comic ever. Right. Okay. And he, you know, um, and he he's going to find his footing. And Roden Rodriguez clearly is doing a lot of the heavy lifting because again, he's a very dominant inker. Um, so otherwise, I was just a little, you know, like I, I remember reading later issues of Firestorm that Raphael Kennedy cannot. How the hell do you say it? Kyanan. I, I, I say Kyan, uh, Raphael Kyanan. That's how Kyanan, I say it. Kyanan did. And they were a lot better. I sort of liked them a lot more than this. So I just think over time he he needs a little, you know, this is just in the beginning. I don't know. I got to move on from this. Um, I <laughs> well, the, I'll share my thought on it real quick. Okay. My thought on that is that he drew the annual. And I imagine he probably had more time to draw the annual. Besides the fact that it's larger, the, the release date's a little, he got more, he wasn't doing an issue before it. So he could work on it for a longer period of time, I bet. Whereas here, he's probably cramped on a quicker deadline. You know, he, he didn't have as much time to flesh it all out. Had to get it done. You know, go, go, go. 
and and I think that maybe what was the you know he's into the monthly grind now rather than doing an annual where you have more time to work on it. That's yeah. my guess. Yeah. Uh, but there are some sequences I like. I like Killer Frost escaping and tackata tackata tackating through the, uh, killing all those guys by doing the ice shards through them. It's kind of a yep. nice, well done sequence. Um, I like some of Firehawk's body language. There's some nice stuff there. Um, yeah, I mean, and and the scene of Killer Frost freezing the cop and then just knocking him off the the balcony mm-hmm. uh, is is well done. It's 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 kind of done in a humorous way, even though it's horrific because she's murdering right. this guy. So yeah, overall, pretty good. I mean, story wise, it's very consistent. I mean, it's just you know, Jerry's just keeping all those balls in the air. Yeah, well, a couple different things. Uh, probably the most, the, one of the more interesting things about the art in this issue, the big splash page, uh, or you know, beginning a fabulous new chapter in the life of Firestorm, because you know it's now he's got Firehawk in his life. Now they got a new artist. It is sort of the beginning of a new era. This splash page, the very first page, is owned by a Nuclear Sub, the okay. actual original art. All right. Our buddy Keith G. Baker owns this page, nice. the original page, and it's hung very. Very nicely on his wall, and he sent me pictures, and I put it on the Firestorm fan one time. It's, it's a very beautiful piece of work. It's very just nice. kind of cool. Yeah. Um, it's a great piece to have if you want to have like yeah. a Firestorm piece exactly. of original art. It's a great shot. It's a really great shot. A couple different things. Interesting, Firestorm and Killer Frost don't fight in this issue. They don't even meet in this issue. That's right. And I didn't think about it until afterwards. I'm like, oh, Firestorm didn't really fight anybody in this. In fact, the only real conflict... Uh, from a combat perspective, is Stein and um, Killer Frost for a couple minutes, where she chased him. That's it. Which is not typical for a Firestorm, but one of the things that Jerry's a master at is creating conflict in other ways, you know, which is the stress of situations and, and uh, two issues that don't meet, you know, that are go head to head, which might be Ronnie and Doreen and things like that. So he creates conflict in other ways without having your typical superhero action, which is interesting. Um, I'm not going to tell you much right now, Rob, but I will tell you it'll make more sense next month when I say this. This issue gives absolutely no hint about what's coming in issue 21, okay. other than Killer Frost is, is in it, um, which makes me th- wonder if Jerry had the plot of issue 21 in mind when he wrote this one. It almost makes me think he wrote this one and then came up with the plot of 21, because 21 takes the story in a very surprising direction. Hmm. All right. That would have been easy to lay the groundwork for. So, um, and again, that'll make more sense next month. Thank you for giving me Doreen's shirt, uh, the explanation, because I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> uh, I, I did feel bad. I mean, Ronnie is a two-timing dude. is is kind of crappy. I mean, normally I don't care about, you know, down with Doreen is my usual motto. But And I don't mean that in a sexual way. Um, oh. I had to go somewhere with that. Once it was out of my mouth, I couldn't just leave it there. So... Anyway, God, just, that's just making it worse. It just keeps getting worse. Anyway, uh, I can't stand Doreen as a girl. I think she's a horrible girlfriend. However, her family really, really came through for Ronnie when they thought his dad was dead. And then to turn around a month later after his dad's back and do this to her, that's pretty crappy. I mean, that's pretty bad. So I got to say, I, I'm, I'm sort of ashamed of Ronnie at this point. But. <laughs> And um, other than that, just some fun ads. Uh, I don't usually mention the ads, but I, there were so many fun ones. You know, the advanced D&D video game, a Cubert video game, the Power Lords. A Joe Cubert video game? What's that about? What? No. <laughs> what? <laughs> said a, you said a Cubert video game. I said there was a Joe well, Cubert video Q- game. Well, funny you should say that. Cubert has an ad in here. You're funny. But Joe Cubert does have an ad in here. Of course he does. It was the 80s. 
Yes, it was the Remco uh, Sergeant Rock figures. Yes. So Th- that then, hit line of action figures. Right, and then the it's funny. There's there's a fishing pole ad in here with Spider Man, and it always cracks me up. Oh, with to Santa, find... the one with Santa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It always cracks me up to see Marvel characters in a DC comic mm-hmm. or vice versa. That mm-hmm. just is always so much fun. And finally, there is a gorgeous full page ad by the none other than Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name for Atari Force. Very nice. So, it's a good comic. Lots of, you know, I never read the credits. So, I am, I sort of had danced around it, but, oh, well, we'll just, Jerry Conway, Roden Rodriguez, Rafael Cannon, Adam Kubert, and Carl Gafford joint. Speaking so. of that, speaking of Adam Kubert, before we get off that, if you notice on page 17, when uh, Martin Stein is looking at the letter and he's reading Concordance Research, a subsidiary of Century Industries, and you look at the sheet that he's looking at, and it's mm-hmm. all just a bunch of gibberish, but you can pretty clearly see Adam Kubert's signature at the bottom right. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, oh. the rest of it is just all just scritches, but you can see the ADAM. Oh, my gosh. Right. And since he did the lettering, I assume he decided to throw that in of his own, his own signature. In the, that know, is hilarious. Good for you, Adam. Good for you. That poor kid. He never really went anywhere, did he? Yeah. So, <laughs> so all right. Uh, another great issue in the can. Love it. Uh, you know, last issue, number 19, we were pretty tough on. But this one, they got him right back on track. So, very pleased with that. All right. Um, you know, I, th- I think what we're going to do here is I think we're going to take a quick break. And then we're going to come back and we'll do your feedback, folks. So, um, we'll be back on the flip side. Sawate. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Backroll to Oracle is a podcast dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the mantle of Backroll for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1988. The goal of Backroll to Oracle is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Backroll and continuing through her tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at a vintage issue of Detective Comics or Batman, as well as other books like Justice League and Freedom Fighters, and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I have a revolving series of segments like Babs in the Tube, which highlights appearances of Babs in TV and film, Shipper Spalai, which looks at a variety of comic and pop culture couples, gives their history, and determines whether they are hot or not, Reading with Stella, which could be described as an audio drama, or just me reading a book that relates to Babs or doesn't, and of course, the mainstay literature recommendation. I have been blessed to interview writers Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon on their Backroll Year One work, Brian Q. Miller on his Backroll run, Dwayne Swarzynski and Christy Marks on their separate Birds of Prey work, and the creators and actors of the Backroll Spoiled, the web series. I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Find the show online at thebatmanuniverse.net and iTunes, and follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Batgirl to Oracle. Thank you, and fly on, Babs lovers. This is Tom Zoller, writer and artist of Love and Capes and My Little Pony, and you are listening to the Fire and Water Podcast. All right, folks, we're back from break, and now it's time for... Listener's Feedback! And we're going to focus on the feedback from our previous review episode where we covered 
Aquaman 39, uh, Firestorm Annual, and Firestorm number 19. We're going to start off with a missive from Mr. Bradley Null. He wrote to us, and uh, part of his letter here says, Why did 19-year-old me think that the Floronic Man was dead when Millennium was published? Everyone hated Millennium in my comic shop. That was actually the whole world hated that. But anyway, um, we tore it to tiny pieces. I was particularly upset because one of my favorite villains, the Floronic Man, had been brought back from the dead. I was then informed that he hadn't died. I made a bet, couldn't find any reference to said death. This, um, this took time even in the pre-internet days, and I lost the bet. I would later go on to write a terrible, <laughs> a truly horrible one-act play about it. Wow. Which is why I know I thought Floronic Man had been given the, quote, green man's strange, dark, peaceful death at the hands of the man of the nuclear age. <laughs> then he goes on to say, I could see the images of his death in my head quite clearly, but couldn't find proof that it happened. If I hadn't written the stupid play, I probably would have forgotten entirely. Then he comes on and he goes, talking about Firestorm number 19, this is the freaking book. I knew it was out there. I had not been insane. Goldenrod is definitely the Floronic man I saw die. This is weirdly comforting. <laughs> he also mentions, uh, yes, his love for the Secret Society supervillain bad guys has made me defend Signal Man and the monocle. Ah, the folly of youth. And there's <laughs> no reason to apologize for that because those are clearly, you know, those are the ones you saw in JLA 195 to 197. And that's such a good storyline. And they made even kind of some Mort villains seem really effective. So there's nothing to apologize there. <laughs> Thank you, Bradley Noel, for that. We appreciate that. Yeah. We heard from our good buddy, Ange. He says, uh, I have been looking forward to this episode because, like Shag, this storyline in Firestorm, which reaches its finale in the annual, is my favorite arc in the book. And like Shad, I, sh- like Shad. And like Shag, I am much more of a fan of Lorraine than Doreen. So seeing her shake off the brainwashing and become a hero of her own was a great part of the issue as well. He says, the Goldenrod issue has to have been a warehouse story, sitting in a drawer to be used in case of emergency. I wonder if Kay Annan, being new, was struggling with deadline pressures, hence the rest, hence the rest issue and the break. It, it, and then he goes on to say, it is anaphylactic shock, Shag. Firestorm should have made Benadryl and epinephrine for himself, assuming he knew the molecular composition. By the way, I take that as a huge compliment because uh, Ange is, in fact, a doctor. So, I really? Excited. Yeah, I got excited when I read that. Really? Ange is a doctor? Yeah, that's for real. Yeah, that's for real. His um, his Twitter handle is Doctor Ange. I, I knew that, but I didn't. I just thought he was like Doctor Doom, you know. Or no, something. no, and it's a medical doctor. It's not a. Uh, wow, it's not like, I'm. It's not, it's not like a book learning doctor. I'm retroactively <laughs> impressed. That's amazing. <laughs> That's really cool. Jeez. I hope I didn't out him too much there. Yeah, but, I mean, his wow. his Twitter handle is Doctor Ange. <laughs> okay. Well, again, it could be like Doctor. All right, never mind. We've got a message from Earth 2 Chris. Uh, he says, Arthur's mom has got it going on. That is all I'm saying. If you listen, if you listen really close, you can hear his wife Cindy rolling her eyes. Uh, he says, I love the dichotomy of Shag. Me too. He points out Lorraine's submissive, misogynistic pose and then calls her hot. He's not wrong. It's just funny. <laughs> I have a greater appreciation of Gene Cola now, but I have to admit I found his work dot, 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 sloppy when I was a kid. Everything was so loose, ethereal, and ill-defined. It bothered me. Even then, I thought it worked on Batman, but almost anywhere else in the DCU seemed like an ill fit for him. This is no exception. Don't forget Jerry Conway launched Tomb of Dracula with Gene Colan. Most people forget oh. – that's right. Most people forget Marv Wolfman wasn't there at the beginning. Chris is exactly right about that. That The first, I think, year of Tomb of Dracula was all different writers as they were trying to find a, a footing for it. And then once Wolfman got on, it clicked. Oddly I mean, enough, G- Wolfman. Uh, right. I was going to say, well, Jerry pretty much launched all of Marvel's books back then. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, and then he also mentions Goldenrod totally looks like a Floronic Man. I thought that was him too. Nice stinger from the deservedly maligned Batman and Robin flick. 
That is probably the only time you will ever hear anything about that movie on the podcast. Suit me up, Uncle Alfred. Oh, dear God. <laughs> we heard from Michael Chiaroscuro. He says, I've mentioned it before, but I have a handful of issues of the Fury of Firestorm run, but decided a while back I'd wait for the trade collection to round out the rest. Well, that clearly ain't happening anytime soon. Thanks, DC. Uh, by the way, I still owe everyone uh, that petition to get these collected. I haven't oh, got that's on right. yet. Yep. And he says, uh, in reading some of those classic issues in recent years, I can see why it was so damn popular back in the day. Let's talk about Firestorm. They are extremely fun comics. They also really take me back to a time, a time when writers were starting to institute serialized storytelling in a much more organic way. And Jerry Conway was one of the best at it. His Batman run, combined with the follow-up by Doug Mensch, weaves subplots between both Batman and Detective Comics for years. It's an underrated classic. But then in the pre... Back then, in the pre-decompression ah, pre era, the serialized comic resembled more of a soap opera, with subplots popping up here and there, sometimes to disappear for issues at a time, but threading through years of a book before ultimately paying off at some point down the line. Exactly right. I couldn't have said it better. Jerry is a master at that. Back then, they weren't writing for the trade, so everything wasn't cleanly wrapped up in six issues. You know, you, you got a, a nice run of a story, and it just slowly progressed and built. Or, and you, the word organic was probably the best way to put it. And he later goes on to cite that Chris Claremont was the master of that. And uh, it's, I miss that organic storytelling as well. And you could still find it in places like, um, you know, like Kirkman's Invincible. I don't know if you've ever read that. But that slowly just builds and evolves organically. Uh, is really nice running there. And there's, there's other books out there like it, but um, yeah, I miss it too, man. We heard from Lucien Desar. He said, question, this might not be too political to, uh, for your show, but recently there's been a lot of talk about Batgirl number 41, Joker variant cover, and it's, uh, and there's so much so that the cover artist requested DC pull it from publication. What's your thoughts on this? When have comics become so political? I'm worried that one day Aquaman will no longer be allowed to carry a trident because it's a weapon, and Firestorm will only be allowed to materialize nerf balls to hit at thugs. <laughs> I like the joke at the end. But uh, I don't know if Rob wants to touch this issue or not. Feel free not to. I will tell you this, though. Uh, you should give a listen to a great podcast called Batman to Oracle, a Barbara Gordon podcast done by a young lady named Stella. She does a fantastic job. If you're a fan of Batgirl or Oracle or Barbara Gordon or all the above, you should definitely check it out as part of the Batman Universe uh, Network. And the reason why I'm specifically mentioning it is because in a recent episode, she was foolish enough to have me on her show to discuss women in comics. Uh, <laughs> Get it out of your system, Rob. <laughs> I was, of course, busy doing the Legion of Superheroes podcast that I did. Right. So, yes, she invited me to talk about feminist issues. <laughs> when uh, Rob was completely floored and stunned by this, my only, my, my best response I could come up with was, uh, only Nixon could go to China. <laughs> so, anyway. Or uh, some Star Trek nerdery in there as well, so well done. That expression has gone beyond Star Trek, but anyway. Uh, so... The bottom line there is we do talk about that cover, and we talk about it at great lengths, and I do share my opinions on it, and I, there's a lot to be said about it. So feel free to check that out there, and um, unless Rob's going to say something, I'm going to move forward. I'm going to say, right. despite everything to the contrary, that was uh, all evidence suggesting that was a good show. I did listen to it, and it was, it was interesting. Um, it was all down to Stella. It, yes. In terms of this topic, yeah, I wasn't really keen to get into it just because, you know, I didn't feel like wading into it. My only issue, uh, my my main thought about it was 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 a simple one was that the the part of it that bothered me the most, I guess, was 
there were a lot of, and this is so hard because it, the minute you say it, it sounds like you're saying that this, everyone did this, or if you know, it sounds very declarative, and I don't necessarily mean it to be. But a lot of the debate I saw about it, there seemed to be a lot of like straight white males telling women how they should feel about this cover, and that bothered me. Um, you, and I mean the royal you, can have whatever reaction you want, but you shouldn't say to someone else, you shouldn't feel this way because I don't feel that way. You know, uh, that kind of what bothered me. I can't possibly imagine what maybe a woman who sees this cover, rea- how she reacts to it. And it bothered me that there seemed to be a lot of comic fans that were like, well, I'm not offended, so you shouldn't be either. So shut up, you know, and uh, that was like, you know, there's lots of different people that read comics now. And um, that was sort of the part that sort of rankled me the most, uh, more than anything else, was was that angle to it. I would extrapolate that thought to go beyond this feminist issue, any kind of issue. Uh, and it's right, not, yeah. not a feminist issue, but just a, 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 uh, a woman in comic issue, I should say. But anyway, any kind of issue. You should never tell someone you shouldn't feel this way. The better way to say is that cover doesn't bother me. You know, kind of would right. be a better statement yeah, right. than saying you shouldn't feel that way. So, yeah, I, I totally see your point, and I totally agree. Yeah, people should not push their opinions on others in any matter. Yeah, it's just it's like, oh, you know, as, as a man, I'm going to have blind spots about certain things. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of different people reading comics now that weren't reading them 10 years ago, which is great. That is what you need for a medium to survive. Uh, and so, you know, DC is now seeing that there's people that – you know, react differently to an image like that that didn't react to it that way 10 years ago. And I think that's a good thing. I'll say this now. If you want to share your opinions on this, folks, feel free to in the comments or emails or whatever. And I'm, I'm putting on my big boy bossy boss pants here. And But we all have different opinions. Let's just, just keep it clean. Fair? Talking to you, Frank. <laughs> well, we don't expect that, Frank. He's going to try and piss somebody off. But anyway, uh, also want to give a shout out. We got some nice messages uh, on the last episode from uh, Bert Bernard, Matt Rodriguez, Jared West. Uh, thank you very much. We heard from Michael Hanranahan? I guess. Han- Hanrahan, I think. Yeah, that, that guy. Uh, he said, I might be the only guy who actually likes Slipknot that I know of. It's a shame that DC killed him off so cheaply. I don't think they killed Slipknot, did they? They blew off his arm. You should know that, Jack. I should know that. Um, Matchheads, help me out here. I don't think Slipknot got killed off because he was – oh, did he get killed in Identity Crisis maybe? Crap, I can't remember. No idea. I I know he got an arm blown off. (laughs) I don't know. Someone tell me because I I clearly have forgotten. (laughs) Okay. Zeb Oswald calls for an Aquaman mini-comic. No, uh, no. Mini mini series. Aquamom. What did I say? You said Aquaman. <laughs> oh yeah, Aquaman. Well, that would be good too. No, an Aquamom mini series. He says so. Okay. Uh, Buck Rowlett suggests pipe being laid needs to be banned from the show. <laughs> Agreed. Buck, don't limit me. And uh, David Buck, Buck Rowlett. Buck, Buck Rowlett. Rowlett. Yes, exactly. Uh, and David Ace Gutierrez says laying pipe and being stacked. This and more at the Fire and Water Podcast. <laughs> we also heard from our buddy uh, Dale Russell, and then then. Two folks jumped up who got my joke, when, which Rob totally couldn't possibly fathom. We were talking about uh, the new time machines to use. I needed to come up with another time machine. And I came up with Sid Rat. And I said, let's see if anybody gets that. Well, our buddy Adam Ackerman, who also goes by Santaron, got it. And as well as um, Zoom. Zoom called me out. He goes, Shag, if you mean Sid Rat, which is TARDIS spelled backwards, then I definitely do get it. But wasn't it pronounced Side Rat on the program? 
Of course, Tardis backwards should be pronounced Sidrot. So, okay, Zoom, let's think about this. Um, Mr. Zum Yakanui, uh, how many times do I say things wrong in this show? Including your name, for example. <laughs> Clearly, I'm going to mispronounce it. So, but yes, good job, everyone. That is from The War Games by Patrick, the Patrick Trotton episode, 10-part story from the 60s, one of my favorite Doctor Who episodes. So good. All right. One of the last thing here, I want to give some shout-outs shout to folks that were kind enough to promote our show by sharing it either on like on their timeline or retweeting it. It's basically putting uh, a mention of this episode out on their social medias, and whether that be Facebook or Tumblr or Twitter or Instagram. Thank you so much. And if I miss somebody, I'm terribly sorry. Uh, I'm only one person. I can only do so much. Why are you so hard on me? Okay. Thanks to Randy Caldwell, Liz Golden, Kichi Baker, Oh Yeah, Brave and Bold, Darren Ruth Sutherland, Visnu Gan, Ganan, Ganyan. Yeah, Visnu. Thanks, man. Uh, Between the Pages, Army of Skanks, Eduardo Escobar. <laughs> Isn't that hysterical? Army of Skanks. That is awesome. Uh, is Doreen Day in that? <laughs> oh, I think it's Norm MacDonald's personal army. But anyway, uh, Eduardo Escobar, Comics History, Manjit Danjal, Jeremy Parker, or Jeremiah Parker, sorry, Dylan Nose, Zeb Oswald, Andy, uh, who uh, his, his, uh, his Twitter name is Hugh DeMann. He's actually been posting reviews of Firestorm issues, um, Fear of Firestorm issues up on Comic Vine, and he's been tagging us and, and using some of our pages and stuff. Thanks for that, Andy. The Flash Podcast, DCU Movie Page, Cord Industries, and our buddy, Ange. So thanks to you folks. We really, really appreciate it. So we're going to take a couple of pages from each one of these issues, Aquaman number 40 and Fear of Firestorm number 20, and those will be up on our Tumblr. Rob, where are they going to be able to find that Tumblr? Fire and Water Podcast.tumblr.com. I forgot. Don't type in the ah part, guys. Yeah, that's yeah, not going to get you there. Part of it. And if they want to send us an email, how would they do that? Fire, ah, no, firewaterpodcast <laughs> at comcast.net. You had one job. One job, Rob. <laughs> it's all you oh, have to do Oh, go say nuclear. Show. Oh, you got me. All right. You can find my obnoxious friend Rob over at <laughs> aquamanshrine.net. You can also find him on the social medias on Facebook, Twitter, and Google Plus under the handle The Aquaman Shrine. Although he appears to have abandoned Google Plus. I'm just going to say that. Yeah, right there. I finally gave up on it. <gasps> gave it its due diligence, but no, just nothing ever. That's a ghost town. So You are a quitter. You are a quitter, my friend. Google Plus people, go. All four of you bombard his page, please. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, um, you can find me at firestormfan.com. You can find me on Twitter, Tumblr, Twitter, uh, all those damn things under Firestorm Fan. I'm out there. Go find me. Anyway, folks, um, I think that's it. So until next time, fan the flame and ride the wave. Aquaman and Firestorm fighting crime together. So Psycho coach? No, I've never seen. Wait, Louise Lincoln? Is that you? 
Hey, it is! We were quite the item. Until I dumped her. Louise wasted the spring of her youth on Ronnie Raymond. But as Killer Frost, she'll make sure this city will fall into the winter of its discontent! 